3: What's most important every moment i think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the
1: virus is having across the country bloomberg business of sports from bloomberg radio
4: hello i'm jason kelly and i'm mike lynch
1: and i'm michael Barr. over the next hour we
4: will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry no exception this week guys that's for sure we're going to catch up with super bowl winning head coach of course, with the Baltimore Ravens. Brian Billick, he's an NFL analyst now and a pretty savvy businessman, interested to get his perspective on the economics of himself and his career, but also the economics of the current NFL. So let's start, though, by talking about the NFL, talk amongst ourselves. They got it done. Uh, pretty impressive. Uh, Lynchy, were you surprised? Um, I was not surprised because I think they've had the longest time to
2: prepare yeah. for their season because they strictly by the, when the calendar when the COVID broke out in early March, the other two preseason baseball was going on, hockey and basketball were just at the tail end of their regular seasons, and they had six months to prepare for it. And it showed too because the, all the veteran coaches not only won but they covered Kansas City, Seattle. Patriots, Baltimore, New Orleans, and Pittsburgh. This is the business of
4: sports, so I had to throw that in there. There you go. Good, good. Uh, So, Michael Barr, uh, what do you think of the product on the field? Oh, the product
1: was great. And and I I have to tell you, I appreciated it. Yes, you you heard the crowd noise, and since we know that it's piped in, you knew it was piped in. But if you weren't paying attention, you wouldn't have known. And more importantly— I can hear a lot of the audibles now on the field. And sometimes you might need a seven-second delay (laughs) for some of that stuff that was on there, which I like, to be honest
4: with you. But I, I thought that was a neat product that I can hear the audibles. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I'm guessing that the successful return of the NFL put a little bit more pressure, as if there wasn't enough, on the Big Ten. Speaking of the Big Ten, and before we dissect it, I was reminded of a conversation that we had just a couple weeks ago with a former Big Ten player talking about Amani Toomer, who went on to a great career with the New York Football Giants. Here's what he had to say about his former conference:
3: It's just not something to be played with, and I think the Big Ten is going to look, look look like the uh, the smart, responsible conferences, while other ones are going to look to me like uh, they're just in it for, you know, they're just in it for
4: you know the notoriety, the money, and and who the hell is with what the kids. How the, how the kids are going to be affected by it. And news this week that they're coming back, end of October. And, Lynchy, was this inevitable in your estimation once we had SEC, ACC, and some of the other big Power Five conferences come back and successfully get on the field? Absolutely. They're looking around, they're saying, if they can do
2: it, why can't we do it? And they didn't have to look very far because right down the road in South Bend, Indiana, Notre Dame was opening up against Duke and playing college football with about 15,000 fans in the stadium. And everybody was healthy and everybody was safe. And other schools, the the SEC and the ACC, kicked off as well. And remember, it'll be prorated probably, but there's $55.6 million per team lying on the table uncollected if they don't play. Wow.
4: Wow. So... This is a business at the end of the day, bar, right? I mean, there were economic pressures. Obviously, there were pressures from the players, I think. It's from a, I want to get out on the field. I'm seeing my buddies who I went to high school with who got recruited to Alabama or Clemson or wherever. But money talks. Oh,
1: you know who the pressure's on now the Pac 12.
4: Yeah. Pac-12
1: is mm. like, oh, sweet merciful, what are we going to do yeah. now? Everybody's coming back. We're the only ones now not playing. The president of the United States is like, come on, Pac-12, hop in there. Now, it, remember, the, the reason why they said it and they were they canceled the season was because of COVID. So we have to keep that in perspective. But now you know that there's a lot of pressure on the Pac-12.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and in the world of baseball, no bigger Mm. money than the hedge fund world and the hedge fund world ripping a page from the popular television show Billions, I feel like Stevie Cohen, SAC Capital Point 72, well known to our Bloomberg audience. He is, after all the new owner of the Mets. Lynchy, this is, as the kids would say, (laughs) SMH. I I mean, I just, I can't believe this is where the Mets ended up. Well, he's a New York
2: native. I think they're looking for somebody that has passion for this team, that has uh, a rooting interest as a a native New Yorker, that's going to spend some money finally, bring in some free agents, get some good management. The question is, will he get approval from 23 out of the thirty? owners in Major League Baseball, because he does have a past.
4: He does have a past, and that's why I think there were at least a few raised eyebrows. Uh, of course, some settlements that he made as a, as a hedge fund manager. Then again, his competition, uh, who dropped out ultimately, was a Former baseball player by the name of Alex Rodriguez, who ultimately, as I said, didn't go for the deal. So maybe there wasn't a perfect solution here, Michael Barr.
1: Come on. So sing it to everybody. Meet the Cohen. Uh, you know, you, you get it. See, meet the man. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen A Rod and J Lo up there in the owner's booth. I would bring my binoculars. To watch them every time if there was a game going on, especially J Lo. I'm yeah. sorry, uh, Mrs. Barr. Don't don't you, you, you didn't yeah hear yeah, that. Just, yeah. But yeah, but anyway, turned it, down the radio. <laughs> it it would have been exciting. Yeah, uh, I'm not gonna lie. But uh, but Steve Cohen got it done. What can you say?
4: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And Lynch, your point is exactly right. I think the excitement is around somebody who's really going to invest yep. in the team. And listen, uh, I will say it, and uh, you can hate-tweet me all you want. I'm a Braves fan, so I have no love lost for the Mets, even though I am a (laughs) relocated New Yorker. And I'll just say, Chipper Jones. In any case, today we're speaking with Super Bowl winning head coach, NFL analyst, Brian Billick. Brian, really nice to have you with us. You and I were talking before we came on air. Last time we saw each other in person, Radio Row down in Miami. Uh, Seems like a long time ago.
3: Yeah, a million years ago, and and it begs the question. it will be interesting to see what the league does going forward. In the Super Bowl this year, as as you know, you know, just in Radio Row, which for those who have never been there, it's just a convention room, huge convention room with virtually every radio and TV station in the country, all um, you know, all jammed together in a tight space. It's an incredible thing to experience. Very efficient for for obviously the talent and for the. Uh, for the stations, but obviously that can't go on. The NFL
4: experience
3: itself, which goes on at the Super Bowl, along with a myriad of other things, uh, it's hard to imagine that advertisers are going to want to participate in that. i I got a feeling that the Super Bowl that goes on this year is going to be like one we haven't seen in, in decades.
1: Well, there's no way in the world I'm going to let the elephant in the room go by Mr. Super Bowl 35 winning ring and I always think about that when you were coaching the Ravens and you're watching that game the experience of winning a Super Bowl so many questions I have but can you take us through that because that has to be something awesome.
3: Well, you know, there, a lot of people in their professions, I don't know that there's a specific moment that you can point to and say, yes, this was the seminal moment of your professional career. Well, obviously, when you're in a Super Bowl as a pro coach, you kind of know this is pretty big. you know. <laughs> and and the great thing for, for me personally, I'll say, is that uh, we had that game wound up by pretty much the middle of the third quarter. So you had kind of a quarter, and rather than a game that's going down to the final minute, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. I had about a quarter and a half to just kind of take it all in and look around and going, yeah, this is this is pretty cool. So yeah, it was a pretty special moment.
2: Hey Brian, this is Mike Lynch up in Boston. Um, uh, we've been to a few Super Bowls uh, here and there over the years. Um, getting to to the Super Bowl this year without the OTAs, without mini camps, without preseason games. Do you see it being a coach? like an Andy Reid, a Pete Carroll, a Bill Belichick, a John Harbaugh, or a Gary Payton, a uh, you know, Mike Tomlin, someone who has experience, has an experience system, and won't have to go through any of the pitfalls of trying to, players trying to adjust and get to know each other? You
3: know, it's interesting. I, I thought the opening week was really quite representative of, of the level of play that we'd expect in opening week. In other words, I'd, I'd challenge someone to show me the opening week in years past, versus this year and say there's a discernible difference. So that tells you that the OTAs, the training camps, the, the altered way that we approached this year, I don't know that it really had an adverse effect. Now, clearly those teams that are coming together for the first time, just as you alluded to, Tom Brady down in Tampa Bay, uh, Dallas Cowboys, Mike McCarthy taking over, certainly in Cleveland where you have a new coach, again, the fifth coach and the fourth offense that Baker Mayfield's had to go through, uh, certainly those teams... that that lack of offseason since it's your first year is going to have more of an effect but i think that will diminish as we go forward yes do the teams that have the experience have been together are they going to start faster is that an advantage yes but as we progress through the year i don't know if it's enough to say well it's enough of an advantage to say clearly that's the way it's going to go down now the the two best teams in the afc are teams that have incredible continuity. You're talking about Kansas City and Baltimore, both in terms of their coaching staff, their players, the quarterback position. So yeah, clearly that's an advantage compared to some of the other teams that are trying to crack into that level, uh, that are having to overcome uh, a, a new system at a time where you really didn't have the offseason that you
4: traditionally do. All right. So, Brian, as you watched week one, and as people are listening to this, we're getting ready for week two what is different what is different about this product as you are viewing it from the perspective of especially a former coach but now someone whose job it is to to talk about this and break it down
3: well obviously the biggest difference as you watch the game if i look at it as a consumer it has a different feel for it although the league i gotta tell you i thought they did a pretty good job obviously playing in front of an empty stadium is a unique experience, and in talking with some of the coaches, they did talk about how that is a different challenge, keeping the energy level for your players up, uh, for to make it you know not feel like just a scrimmage or another practice. But from the fan standpoint, watching it, it, you know the way they piped in the music, whether it was the the television broadcast units that did it or there at the the stadium themselves. I thought you kind of got used to it, and it had a a pretty normal feel to it. Uh, In terms of the mechanics of the game and the players physically, I I will tell you this. The coaches said this is the healthiest, in general, the healthiest they've ever come into starting a season because of the way they ran the offseason. And don't think for a second now that the players aren't going to take note of that and say, well, look, We seem to be playing the game at the same level and we're healthier. Do we really need that off-season OTA? Do we really need to have uh, preseason games and scrimmages? Why don't we just kind of continue to do it this way? Because the players obviously would prefer to do it that way and not have to go through the rigors of the preseason games and the scrimmages. And and it's going to be a tough argument for the league to say, oh, no, no, we need to go back to having preseason games.
1: Coach, Big news, obviously, from the Big Ten, they're going to play football and they're going to try to do it at the end of October. And that means all of the teams in the Big Ten have to now get into football shape within five weeks. Can you give us your thoughts about that? That has to be tough.
3: Yeah, I, th- I think that they'll be able to do that because they've been conditioning and doing this all along. They didn't know if they were going to play, so obviously the coaches needed to temper exactly what they're doing. But when you think about the NFL season, they had basically six weeks prior to which they had no contact with their players that they went through a progression of training. You know, there's three types of conditioning. There's cardiovascular. They'll be fine that way. There's There's getting into football shape, which is the large muscle groups, the hams, the glutes, the quads. Uh, that that takes a, a certain amount of orchestration. They'll get to that. But you have to get into hitting shape, too. That That's a legitimate perspective. How much hitting can I get away with on my own team so that I show up at the opener ready to play what is obviously a very physical and violent game? Um, and that's the one that challenges you the most. But I think, as we just talked about in the NFL, I think they stepped up to it pretty good. So I imagine the five-week ramp-up period for the Big Ten they'll 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 handle it really well they've got more of a head start than certainly the NFL did uh and I think the product will be pretty good
2: coach uh, you were talking about consistency uh with NFL teams out of the gate and one team that uh, there was a lot of question marks up here in New England how would Cam Newton do under a new offense with Belichick and Josh McDaniels and your impressions on uh, Cam Newton on week one were you surprised at how efficient he was
3: no, you, and you got to know that, that New England, of all the teams, would adapt to what they had. I mean, even when they had Tom Brady, no team was more adaptive than the New England Patriots, even from week to week. They'd come out one week and decide, okay, we're just going to throw it 50 times because that's what we think we have to do to win. Then the next week say, well, no, we're going to run it 43 times because we think we can run, and we think that's the best way to win. So their system, again, given the stability of, of Bill Belichick in 20 years, now they – their challenge this year now, not only is it the loss of Tom Brady and an entirely new system around a Cam Newton that presents a totally different skill set to Tom Brady, but he's had to revamp that defense at the same time. It, w- it would have been daunting to have to do either, but to do both, and obviously they started out very well against Miami. Uh, we'll see how they do as they progress during the season. But but clearly, Cam Newton, what they're seeing is a totally different style than what they're used to with with uh, Tom Brady. I mean, Cam Newton ran it, what, 15 times in the first game?
4: So, Coach, as you think about the product, and, and, and this is where I, I feel like we really value your perspective as a coach, an analyst, and a businessman. I mean, you said it, the product on the field is a little bit different What do you think that that means in the broader sense when you think about the NFL as something that is consumed? It is incredibly popular obviously. There's nothing there's no more popular sport uh, in America or the world I guess the world it it rivals uh, uh, soccer or football Um, but that product, how do you think about it how it's sold right now and how the pandemic may have changed that?
3: Well, the biggest change, and it's interesting. Um, Clearly, obviously, the fans not being there, but they'll work their way through that. Um, But what's different is the fact that there are so many sports going on right now. Because of the pandemic, we're starting the U.S. Open golf here this week. We just finished with the uh, the tennis. Um, I think last Thursday, was it not the first time that we've had seven major sports participating at the same time? NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball. We had golf. We had tennis. And that affected the numbers of the NFL for the first time. I mean, they're, you're talking about a Thursday night game that featured two really good teams, hallmark teams in terms of this season. When you're talking about the Houston Texans and the Kansas City Chiefs, and I think I think the broadcast was down between fifteen and twenty percent. Yep wasn't because of a lack of interest it was just there were a lot of other choices so that's the biggest challenge to the league right now you know this is the goose that laid the golden egg and it's always been on the top of ratings and 40 of the top 50 tv shows traditionally in a given year will be nfl games but the fact that the you know the thing about sports what people are drawn to and what marketing people are drawn to is it's a point the tv it's live compared to the other things that are taped or replayed so the fact that they have legitimately for the first time truly had to compete with those other entities during this time frame. It will be interesting to see going forward if other uh, entities like the NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, whatever, adjust their seasons to compete with the NFL. Well, before it would be, look, we're not going to compete with the NFL can't keep up with it. But they're showing, well, you know what, maybe we can. It'll be interesting to see if that changes the landscape of when these seasons are going to transpire because of the way they think they can compete.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Qatar Economic Forum.com.
1: You had a brilliant career as a coach. You're brilliant as an analyst. And many other coaches and players have made that transition from the field to the booth. How hard is it for you or any coach or any player to make that transition from something that you're very passionate about on the field to now going to the booth?
3: It is different. And you have to recognize that as you make the transition, I also opened up a couple small businesses. Uh, uh, just, to, just to you know, be a part of the the community I was in, and some of those types of things. Um, you, you find other ways to obviously channel your energies, wow. recognizing that you're not going to be able to duplicate what you had in a 40 year career for me. and you know, uh, 20 years in the NFL and going to a Super Bowl, like we talked about earlier, uh, not, not better, not worse, but just different. And, and fortunately for me, because of my work with the NFL network and Fox for a while, I was able to stay and, and able to stay just close enough to the game, you know, that you can get that, you know, as, as my mentor, Ozzie Newsom used to say, I still got that itch that needs to be scratched, so to speak, to be around a game that I've been around my entire professional life. Um, uh, all but a little bit at arm's reach and don't have to. It's not the 24-7 uh, grind that it was when I was coaching to still be around it, but then do the other things. But the biggest thing is to recognizing that you need to tap into the, to your creative juices, so to speak, but recognizing it's likely not going to be duplicated, what you did earlier, uh, but still worth doing.
2: Coach, who are your favorites in the AFC and the NFC uh, as we
3: basically are just starting out on this season right now? Well, we already talked about the AFC, and then I think it's pretty much Kansas City and Baltimore are the, uh, the you know lead horses out of the gate, so to speak. You have some pretty good teams. I think Houston is still pretty good, although they've got a killer schedule to begin with. Uh, Tennessee looks to be pretty solid. Uh, so I think it's uh, you know they're trying to work into that next year, and then you got a whole bunch of teams trying to get into that next level. The NFC is absolutely wide open. That, to me, that's it's going to be fascinating. I could make a case for eight to ten teams in the NFC, and particularly with the expanded play. Uh, format, I, I could make a case for uh, six, seven, eight teams to say, yeah, this is a legitimate Super Bowl caliber team. You've got some great quarterback play, uh, particularly when you talk. talking to I mean, you got three guaranteed Hall of Famers in the NFC still playing with Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, and Drew Brees. You have some great young quarterbacks coming up. Um, I, I just think you could handicap it a lot of different ways, but I think it's a wide open field in the NFC.
4: All right. So, Brian, you touched on this a little bit briefly earlier in the conversation, but take us through how you choose your kind of business life now, how you how it's evolved, how you choose who to work with and and what you're up to now.
3: Well, there are a number of opportunities locally where I live. Uh, I started a small boat brokerage business. I love boating on the Chesapeake Bay, so a buddy and I started a small brokerage business. I did a little bit of land development, but the biggest one, and I'm very proud, uh, seven years ago, got involved with uh, Bob Broderick and Teddy Monica in New York. We're sitting in a hotel, and and the idea of, of starting a pad company. Never thought I'd get into that, obviously. Uh, and did know that eight years f- uh, from that point, we've developed into the number one pad company in the National Football League. It's it's really been gratifying to, to be a part of that. Uh, and it is the number one pad company. Guys like George Kittle, Saquon Barkley, Aaron Donald wear the pads. Programs like Oklahoma, Auburn, Notre Dame, Ohio State. Uh, I mean, this is a billion-dollar market globally. Uh, and and it's really been left to smaller uh, companies, You know, a lot of people think of the big three, Nike, Adidas, and Under Armour. Uh, they don't produce equipment, never have. So you have a lot of other companies that have these ancillary inputs, and, and, and particularly in football, uh, like I said, to go from scratch, from a, like, literally on a piece of paper in a hotel room eight years ago. Uh, We developed the XRD technology, an exclusive partnership with it. These are basically hand fitted pads that are the best in the National Football League. You know, players have become much more proactive in what they put in and on their bodies. They are choosing. I mean, back even the day when I was coaching, players didn't know what pads they had. You just gave them pads and they wore them. Now they're being very selective. These are basically hand fitted pads uh, that are the best in the business. So it's been kind of exciting to get into a business venture that's so closely related to what I did for 40 years to see the success that it's had.
1: I'm amazed how the business of football has changed from the day. And like you said, 20 years ago when you were coaching uh, in the NFL and then 20 years from that in 1980, how everything has changed. You didn't have Twitter. Uh, if you wanted to say anything, but unless you held a press conference, you had to do it through uh, your PR agent. How has this game changed from 40 years ago, and are you amazed by it?
3: Uh, I, I am amazed by it, but you can't be surprised. I've got a book coming out at you know, uh, the end of this month called The Q Factor, which it's basically about the process of evaluating quarterbacks and how we how we get it wrong so often. And it's fascinating when you go back and you look at it. it was really in about the mid-'80s. You talk about going back to 1980. In the mid-'80s is when ESPN approached uh, Commissioner Roselle at the time and said they wanted to televise the draft. And he said, well, sure, you can do it. I don't know who's going to watch. And, and yet now it has grown into from that to literally one of the biggest sporting events – NFL draft will outdraw NBA, Major League Baseball, uh, 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 NHL playoff games at the time. That's tell you how big it, it, it has gotten at a time when we also started the Combine. So it's interesting that, that the interest in the NFL, and interest in that drafting process, coincided with the league making a seat change and becoming more organized and consolidating in its preparation in terms of the evaluation of its players. And it's just grown exponentially. Obviously, the analytics and the matrix that you use now in terms of acquiring these players, uh, the sheer mechanics coaches, teams are now practicing virtually. They'll go into a huge room and they'll put a video uh, shot up of a virtual environment where they can... Because every time you put your player on a field, you put them at risk. So if you can repeat the process in a safer environment where they're not actually exerting and hitting one another, but can get that virtual, uh, almost simulator-type experience to create that that muscle memory and that knowledge. I mean, it's incredible how we've advanced from back in the nineteen—the ancient times of the 1980s.
2: <laughs> Since this is the business of sports show, I want to go back to these uh, shoulder pads. I'm an old quarterback and place kicker from college, and I just remember when, when the seniors graduated, you know, you'd know, you say, oh, so-and-so had a nice pair of shoulder pads. I want to get those next year. <laughs> and you took a Sharpie and you crossed his number out and you put your number on, and they were yours yeah. for a year. So you're telling me that pro football players actually have custom. Custom-made shoulder pads, and then when they're done with them, what happens? Reconditioned, or are they just to throw them in the, in the trash well, no, and you just buy new ones?
3: Yeah. It's not just pro, but it's college, and they're available to high school players now. That's the biggest thing, the advanced technology. What we've done at X-Tech Pads is we now have a database of, of and can basically form-fit pads to, to even the youngest players in high school based on age, size, position, injury history, weight, uh, position obviously there's a number of factors because obviously offensive linemen are going to wear different pads than a quarterback different pads than a db or a wide receiver uh and again there's a huge difference between the way you're going to protect a young player in high school versus a you know a veteran in the nfl just the sheer size and speed of the game so the technology that we talked about in the advancement i mean we correctly we've taken the head out of the game which we needed to do everybody's talked about and recognized the concussion protocols but in doing so it, it puts a higher priority then on your shoulder pads, and really, they had not changed in, in 40 or 50 years until X-Tech pads, and it's why we're the number one pad in the NFL, and they're available to high school players at XTechPads.com. It's, it's the pad that our young people need to be in.
4: Well, and it's interesting, Coach, to think about it holistically, as you just discussed. We... Care a lot more, and we're much more aware of the science around player safety. We're thinking about the mental health more and more. And we're also thinking, as you well know, more and more of late around social justice. And Barr was talking earlier about social media and how different it is, you know, these decades on in terms of how players express themselves. I dare say the NFL by many accounts, was a little bit late to endorsing some of that when it comes to player mem- player empowerment. What do you make of that? What do you make of what Commissioner Goodell has said of late and where the league stands when it comes to allowing players to have a voice?
3: Well, yeah, for, first off, you have to keep in mind that there are very few environments more diverse than an NFL locker room,
2: mm-hmm.
3: politically, geographically, religiously, racially. I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredible atmosphere to be in when you look at the diversity in that locker room. And so you have a lot of perspectives. A lot of people that are going to have bring into it a lot of, of, of different experiences, different opinions. I think the league had to recognize that as well. Uh, that may be, and you know, whether they were late to it or not, again, the league has been very, very protective of the shield, so to speak. And to a degree, some critically, that they've been very restrictive of the players to reach outside of the branding of the NFL, whether it be what they put on their uniform and how they advertise. Um, and, and so that was the natural reaction. And, and, and even in something with regards to social justice and what the league, like everybody, has recognized, no, we need to be a little more expansive than that. We have to allow the players to use this platform, to use their voice, The hard thing is, again, uh, certainly the individual has to have that right, but it does have to be done as a collective as well. As a coach, that would be my biggest concern. Yes, we want to be responsive to our players and, and their right to use their platform to express their opinions in what is very important social issues. But it is a team collective, and we have to make sure that those individual perspectives don't override the team collective because this is a team. It is a group. So we have to be respectful that there are going to be different views even within these topics and that we have to – we can't let that divide us as a team yet still embrace the right for players to express themselves in, in the way they think is appropriate. So it's, it's a lot to handle. I think the league, like everybody, is kind of working their way through it. Uh, I think they've done an excellent job, not unlike uh, the, the dealing with the COVID. I think they're proving to be an excellent example, the league is, in the way they've addressed and thrown so many resources in creating their COVID protocol to show they can be that example to say, yes, we can open up, we can do business. Yeah, it takes a lot of focus, a lot of time, and a lot of energy, a lot of money, but we can do this to where we're respective of, of, the, of keeping everybody safe, yet we can still open up to the business of the country. And I think the NFL, like in the social justice, like in dealing with the COVID protocol, uh, is proving to be kind of a leader in, yes, we can do this.
4: Brian Billick, thank you so much. Really good to catch up with you. And here's hoping that we get to connect uh, at the Super Bowl in some form or fashion, maybe an altered radio row. Who knows? Who knows what the future will bring? But looking forward to your analysis throughout the season, I think we're all just glad that there's football again.
3: I'm with you. We'll do it.
4: All right. So Brian Billick, good to catch up with him, guys. And, you know, Michael Barr... There's nothing like winning a Super Bowl, obviously, but he has leveraged it. I feel like into a pretty successful post NFL career.
1: Oh yeah, Uh, it's. I I was listening to him when he was talking about uh, his business ventures, and 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 I think what uh, that was really important when you step off from the field and now you're an analyst. He said you have to channel your energy elsewhere also. And in his businesses, uh, that seems to be something that is a cog in that machinery that keeps Brian Billick going.
4: That uh, AFC uh, rundown, though, uh, Lynchy, may hurt for uh, some of our uh, fans there in the Bay State. Oof!
2: I did not hear the mention of the Patriots or I Bill not. Belichick. I did not hear
4: any mention of them
2: at all. I was going to interject, but... You know, he had the floor, and uh, I did not have the gavel. Yeah, uh,
4: (laughs) pretty interesting now. Interesting. He's
2: got Tennessee. He's talking about all these other teams, and I don't know. As long as Belichick's around, I just don't see how you count them out. Um, Now, you know, there's still 15 games to go, and I, I don't think you'd be anointing Cam Newton as the MVP just yet, but... You know, Bill Belichick takes what he has, and he's he's darn efficient with what he has, and he was with Cam Newton in week number one.
4: Well, who knows? Maybe uh, old habits die hard. If once you coach the uh, once you coach the Ravens, you may uh, there may be some subconscious things uh, going on there. But also interesting to hear him talk about. I, I think the tough line that the NFL has to walk, and and his point about the innate diversity. I think of in NFL locker room and the differences of opinions and backgrounds and, and all of that, and that ultimately it is about the team and kind of balancing the individual and the collective. Uh, not easy. And, and listen, if you're a head coach, especially in the NFL, uh, you understand that balance.
2: Well, absolutely. And, and, and in football, more than any other sport, the coach makes the rules. It is it is sort of – it's not a democracy in, yeah. in football because the coaches – but when it's come to social justice, the coaches, I think, have been smart. They've yielded to the will and the wishes of the team collectively as a whole. And most obvious example of that is who comes out for the National Anthem, who stays in the locker room for the National Anthem. I would dare say five years ago the coach would give an order. We're all going out, yep. darn it all. We're going to be on the sideline, and you're going to do what I say, and, that, and, and that's that, and that's final because I'm the coach. And I think – in 2020, uh, the coaches have yielded that decision to the captains of the team and the majority of the team, and I think it's a good and positive thing.
4: I agree with you. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since i was a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike.
1: We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business and Sports, the number of the week.
4: <laughs> <laughs> now Michael Barr has the gavel. There there we go. Here yeah, we go. Yeah, buddy. <laughs>
1: Well, listen, we talked about the sale of the Mets going to Steve Cohen. But let's see if you can rehab this memory here. About uh, less than a year ago, the Kansas City Royals were sold to energy founder John Sherman for how much? Was it? I think it was less than a billion,
2: wasn't it? We're going to use the Prices right yeah, theory okay. here, right. The closest without going over. The closest it, without going it? over. The tiebreaker? I'm gonna say uh right on the nose one billion.
1: <laughs> oh, Lynchy! Oh, you get the bonus too, man. Come Uh-oh. up Uh-oh. on stage. It was a billion
4: dollars, man. Oh wow. right. well at least I did. I, I, I feel like I didn't totally embarrass myself. You, you didn't overbid like you did the other time. That's times. all I'm going for at this point. I'm going for not embarrassing. Well done, Lynchy. Nice wow. job. That was good, man. Now you're gonna play Pimco, man. <laughs> and it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't uh, just to bring it all together. Uh, Mr. Mahomes is part of that ownership group now, isn't uh, he? I believe you're right. Yeah. There that you is he is. Yes, yes, he is. Exactly. Investing in the local community, uh, as it were. <laughs> all right. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week for you at the same time. Plus, online wherever you get your podcast. Catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Jason Kelly. Find me on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. Ding, 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 ding. And I'm Lynchy,
2: <laughs> the winner this week. I've been embarrassed in the past. <laughs>
1: You can follow me at Lynchie WCVB. By the way, I followed Lynchy when he was in his football days. I called him "Sexy Lynchy." I like. <laughs> it. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Barr Sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports, Bloomberg Radio around the world.